you want to learn more about effective management, head over to madsingers.com and sign up for my free management training. Welcome to the Mad Singers Management Podcast from madsingers.com, where entrepreneurs and business managers learn and share. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review. Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Mad Singers Management Podcast. And today I'm joined by John, the lawyer. How are you doing, John? I am wonderful, Mads. Thanks for having me. How are you? I am fantastic. John, you're the first lawyer we have on the show. And I hope I'm not a terrible example. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, w- I wish I could say I knew a lot of good ones, but I think you might be one of a few. John, I'm really, really excited for today's episode because I think we're going to touch on some things that we haven't really touched on before. And I really hope we can add a ton of value to the audience today. So would you mind giving the audience a little bit about your background and who you are first? Sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, My name is John DiGiacomo. I am a partner in what we describe as an internet law firm, Revision Legal. We typically say that we help anyone who makes business, anyone who does business online. So if you make money on the internet, if you are a FBA seller, uh, if you own an e-commerce store, we're the law firm that's targeted to you. And we represent clients all around the world, ranging from publicly traded companies all the way down to small venture capital uh, funded startups. And our practice areas range from uh, intellectual property, litigation, business law, employment law, and then kind of anything around that, securities work, buying and selling a business, et cetera. And that is some of the stuff I I would love to talk about today. I'm absolutely no expert in any of those areas. So I'm uh, I'm super excited to to talk about this. uh, What's the biggest challenge that you typically see when you start working with a client? Or what, what are sort of the typical cases people come to you with? Well, recently we've been seeing, because of COVID-19 and because of the pandemic, we have been seeing a lot of uh, selling and acquiring of businesses. So a typical client will be someone who either currently owns, let's say, for example, an e-commerce company and a large fund or a larger competitor wants to buy them because they are distressed or they're they're concerned about growth or uh, represent a lot of funds that are interested in acquiring businesses, building them up with an operator who has expertise, and then uh, selling them or operating them as a portfolio. So that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Our typical client is usually an e-commerce store, um, ranging from, I'd say 500,000 in sales US to probably 200 million. That would be the kind of average range. And it's all over the map. It could be uh, information products. It could be drop shipped products. It, it, we really see, like I said, anything that is sold on the internet. Uh, we've seen it. Excellent. Yeah, and that's. Uh, I, I think that's a very unique thing as well. I mean, obviously, more law firms are getting accustomed to the internet, but I, I really like the fact that you target those people specifically because, uh, at, at least from my own experience, right, getting people to actually understand the online world is. Not always so easy. So, It's difficult. We have clients who will come to us and say, I own an affiliate marketing business. Do you know what that is? And of course, I say things like, of course, I have 
been on commission junction since you know I was a kid. <laughs> so yep. I think they appreciate that we have that expertise and that we've grown up uh, with this technology and we can speak to that. Um, and then from the legal side as well, I think uh, our, our people are highly experienced. I'm a professor at Michigan State University College of Law. I teach trademark law there. Um, so I, being able to combine those two things, the, the understanding of technology and expertise in the, in the area of law makes for a, a big practice and it makes for a really fun practice too. Excellent. And, and how long have you been doing the business? How long have you focused specifically on sort of the online segment? I have been in the internet lawyer space, which is how you would call it, um, for 10 years. Okay. And our business has been around now since 20, uh, September of 2012. So I think okay. it's uh, six years now, seven years. Yeah. Okay. That's excellent. That's excellent. And John, so when you when you go down the route of mergers and acquisitions and so on, right? I mean, I, I know quite a few people at, at this point that are that are in this space and, and particularly people right now that, you know, they have cash in the bank, their online businesses haven't really been hit so hard. So they have money, they want to invest and they, they see opportunities. Um, what are sort of some of the pitfalls, if you will, or what are some of the some of the things that they really need to look out for, particularly in a time like this? I think the biggest pitfall is understanding your valuation. And I am by no means a valuation expert. Obviously, we have a lot of friends who are in that space, such as Empire Flippers or uh, other brokers that will sell businesses. I think that's the first step, understanding what you're worth and what your products are worth and being realistic about it. Because there are a lot of people who will look at their profit and loss statement and they'll see let's say five million in sales gross sales and you know five thousand dollars in net profit it's they'll and they'll ask based on gross sales they'll, they'll build a number around you know, what they believe that they're worth it's tough coaching those people and explaining you know really this business though it has so much in sales it really is not worth what you think it is and those are really difficult conversations um, I, i think also there are a lot of predatory buyers out there so truly understanding what you have and what the value of it is is tough uh, for example if you have a established brand that has a registered trademark for example and it it is known well known on something like amazon that adds a ton of value that might not be reflected or realized in sales So walking clients through that process and, and helping them better understand what it is that they have um, so that they can either get the, the business that they want to buy for the best price or to sell their business for the best prices. Um, it's a challenge, but it, we try to do it as diligently as possible. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see. I mean, evaluations, I guess, is a, is a big thing for sure. Any, any sort of big hiccups or any sort of situations you've seen where, I guess, people really burn their hands, either in selling or on the buyer side, where, you know, they just walk into a deal and they've either been blinded or something like what, if you've seen that, like, well, what are sort of the typical scenarios of what happens? From the seller side, the one that I always kind of get afraid of is an earnout payment because the seller transfers the assets over to the buyer. And in an earnout payment uh, scenario, there is a second payment after the first that is based on the continued performance of the business. Yeah. So you're worried that 
well, you know, is this buyer really going to be able to continue to do what I did? I mean, does he know my product? Does he know the market at all? And a lot of times the buyer doesn't. So the buyer begins operating the business. There's no relationship, continued relationship between the seller and the buyer. And the buyer starts to run the business in the ground. And so a dispute arises over, you know, am I entitled to this secondary payment, this earnout payment? From the buyer side, same thing. The buyer walks in, you know, thinks he or she um, is getting something that they aren't, and they get into an ads account, for example. And they see that the ads account uh, isn't what was represented because once the assets transfer, they have more access. Those are the types of things that we see uh, result in disputes. So when we're drafting, for example, a asset purchase agreement, those are the types of conversations that we have with clients to kind of coach them on, are you thinking about this? You know, are, are you thinking about whether you can continue to operate this business once it's been transferred? Yeah, that, uh, that definitely sounds like some of the scenarios that I've, I've seen as well. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And is it common, do you see that, that people either regret purposes or you know, they, they get very surprised with what they get or are people, uh, is your experience generally that people sort of get a, a in, in general, they get what they're looking for? If you have an experienced operator uh, who is a seller, generally speaking, I'm sorry, who is a buyer? Generally speaking, they know what they're looking for. They know what is within their skill set, and then they can uh, make a, a very informed purchase. Yeah. When you have somebody who has come from another field, for example, uh, yeah. let's say they've come from the finance world and they've made a lot of money in finance, but now they want to turn turn the tables in uh, the Amazon world. They think they're going to rule the world. Um, that's where we see a lot of mistakes. And we've seen people run into huge problems where they buy a business, they're entirely incapable of keeping the supply chain up and the whole thing falls apart and they lose $500,000 and million dollars. Um, yeah. You can almost always see that from a mile away. And so as an attorney, when you talk to those people, you say, okay, well, do you understand what you're getting into? Uh, you know, you have no experience in this this uh, field, and they will always say, "Oh no, no, I know what I'm doing. I, you know, I've read all the books, I've listened to all the podcasts, and, and it's just not enough." There, the other big thing that we see is um, an account can be suspended uh, within days after it's been transferred. And for example, if you're buying off of Amazon, we've seen people have their accounts suspended or terminated. And it was because they didn't do reasonable due diligence on the front end. So they didn't know how many strikes there were or whether there were any prior notice of claimed infringement. And when we see that, it's just a huge problem because then you got to sue Amazon, file an arbitration proceeding, try to get that account back opened up or sue the seller. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's always with, with all these platforms, I guess there's a lot of, there's a lot of work for you guys. And uh, I mean, I, I, I think I know people, both on the sort of Amazon seller side, but definitely also on the affiliate side of things where, you know, Amazon just, yeah, they, they behave in ways that are sometimes difficult to deal with as a business owner, right? Um, and you mentioned suing Amazon. Is that something you've done, you guys have done a lot? And what's generally the success rate, I guess? We have. Uh, I have represented Amazon in litigation before, um, in a case in the Northern District of Illinois many years ago. Um, and then subsequently I have filed many arbitration proceedings against Amazon. 
we have never sued them. And the reason why we have not sued them is because Amazon has a arbitration policy within their seller agreement. And that policy says that any dispute between you and Amazon must be brought in Washington state, so state of Washington in the United States, and it must be brought in arbitration. And the arbitration is confidential. So what happens is that Amazon forces you into this arbitration proceeding. Uh, there's no precedent. There's no body of case law to look at to see how um, other cases, what the outcome of other cases were. And they use that to their advantage. And I think one thing that's really important for your listeners, if they're in that world to know, is that Amazon can terminate your account at any time for any reason. So when you are buying an asset like that, you have to keep that in mind. And that's a risk that you have to control for when you are thinking about, you know, what are you going to do with this asset? And I've seen it before. Somebody has walked into a deal and Amazon's terminated the account and the client comes to us and says, what can you do? And the answer is you really can't do anything because you don't have a contractual right to that account. It's just at their whim, they can decide whatever they want. Yeah. And, and what, like, if there's, if there's challenges like that, like, do you actually have any legal option? Because I, I definitely know of people who have definitely gone down the legal route. I don't necessarily know if they ended up suing them, but they've definitely gone down the legal route to some extent with Amazon uh, for lost earnings and things like that. Like, is there anything to play on at all? Or is it just a big black box where you can't do anything? It is, there is always something that might be possible. So let me give you an example. We had a client come to us, and I'm not going to use any names or any sure. products, uh, product names, but we had a client that came to us that uh, had his account suspended because someone made a complaint that his uh, product was not genuine. And our client responded by providing the invoices from its supplier and generally kind of laying the groundwork for the provenance of the item. And Amazon, sometimes you get into this black hole where the uh, customer service representatives at Amazon don't listen or don't care. And they suspended the account. And then our client was in this kind of limbo, the suspension limbo, and he had $500,000 of product in an FBA warehouse. And Amazon said, you need to remove your product. Well, because you're not selling, which is a rule under their agreement. Well, he, could, he didn't get this email because it was never sent to the right address and it was a whole thing. And Amazon decided to destroy the inventory. Um, they, they call it destroy, but I think what they actually do is they liquidate it. They sell it um, through their, uh, they have a separate section of the site. And this guy lost $500,000 in inventory. So we filed an arbitration proceeding and we were successful. We were able to recover some of those damages. That's the typical scenario. But when you walk into it, you have to tell the client, look, you may never get your account back because as soon as we file this arbitration proceeding, there's no going back because Amazon can say at any time, we're not going to deal with you. Um, and we've had some scenarios where we've been able to get accounts reopened but it's it's uh, it's not very frequent. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a difficult space, and I, I guess it's it's the same wherever it's Amazon or Google or wh whatever big tech giant people is playing with. It's uh, you're you're always at the mercy of of some bigger players who who tends to own a lot of 
sort of the the space around you, right, where where it can be difficult to navigate. So, I agree, and I think the answer to it, and what the strategy that we've taken, is one that is um, shared by our friend uh, Justin Cook, which is the steak dinner. When you buy Amazon's attorneys steak dinners, they suddenly know who you are, and you have a direct line of communication. So we've been fairly lucky uh, to have good relationship with them where for our larger clients we will make that extra effort and we'll reach out to them if we need to yeah yeah it's all about relationships okay that's interesting that's interesting so john any other particular areas that you guys work with a lot and where you where you feel there might be some value for for the audience well, you're a management guy, so I think uh, remote teams is a is an area that we work in, and we do a lot of employment work, uh, particularly now with COVID, because everyone's kind of a remote team. Um, and what we're seeing is a lot of kind of uncharted territory about how do you deal with remote employees, and you know uh, what kind of policies should we apply to them. Definitely. That uh, yeah, I mean that's that's been <laughs> the bulk of my clients the last three four months have definitely been about people going in sort of the remote space and you know they're like oh we have to do this and people have to work from home and how do we do it and uh, yeah so that's it, I guess both policies but quite a few of the companies that I've worked with uh, particularly in Europe some of those take for example credit card details over the phone and you know normally there's a whole set of rules about what you can and cannot do when you take credit card numbers. And usually with all the ISO standards and stuff, you have to follow all these guidelines where employees aren't allowed to have cell phones and stuff. But when people are then suddenly working from home, that makes the world a lot more complicated in areas like that. It it does. And it does in the United States, particularly right now, because uh, under GDPR, there was this, policy, GDPR for listeners is the General Data Protection Regulation, which covers the uh, the collection and use of personal or personally identifiable information within the European Union. And uh, prior to, I think, Monday of last week, you could enroll in this U.S. Privacy Shield, which basically was a self-certification program that said... I will meet the European standard for the transfer of personal or personally identifiable information. Uh, you would self-certify and then you kind of get a stamp, that stamp of approval that you were GDPR compliant. Well, the European Court of Justice ruled, uh, like I said, I think about a week ago, that the privacy shield does not go far enough for protecting European citizens' personal information. So what we're seeing now is with these remote teams that have an office, for example, in uh, Munich and then an office in Detroit or something like that. So yeah, we're seeing that from our side as well. Interesting, interesting. And what what are the sort of key value you guys at? Like any particular areas around remote work and so on that, that you guys see a lot or... Is it typical cases like this where it's about sort of legislation or what what else do you see, I guess? Well, we're not really on the management side in the sense of, um, you know, helping businesses manage their employees in the sense of like, how do we work through the logistics of this stuff? But the, the kind of stuff that we see are, you know, we've got this IP or we have this database, we have this, um, thing of value 
some something, whatever it might be. How do we protect it? And kind of what are the legal uh, realms that surround the protection of that? And, and I'll give you an example. We have a client that has a database that's very valuable. It's um, it has very valuable information in it, and it's licensed to the public and for a very expensive fee. And uh, because everyone is now remote, everyone needs access to the database to up it and to populate the fields. So what they're going through is this kind of um, strategic planning of how do we uh, protect this asset when everyone's off site and they may be using other devices. And that's kind of the area where we're helpful because we come in and we give them kind of the legal, the legal framework and then we try to work through some of the practical data security uh, and physical security problems that arise out of those relationships. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I can definitely see a lot of that happening, right? Like I, I, I can see either with, even with the smaller businesses, uh, I, I think a lot of people look at all these GDPR and even back to can spam and all that sort of stuff. And they're kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, it's too complex to figure out. I'll just do what I do. And, you know, if shit happens, shit happens. But I, I think even as a small business, um, what, what are some good ways to actually help protect your business against these sort of challenges? And is there anything that you really recommend to, uh, for small business owners, I guess, particularly, anything you recommend to really look into or, or focus on in terms of these, I guess, difficult rules? Yeah, I think, let me give you a really uh, recent and modern example that um, is very similar to the can spam uh, GDPR kind of, you know, shit happens and, uh, you know, if it happens to me, it happens to me. There's a new, uh, a new trolling technique. Lawyers are notorious trolls. And there is a new set of lawyers that are suing website owners for violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act, including foreign website owners. So what they do is they go to the site and then they run a check to see whether or not it is accessible for blind and hearing impaired people. And if it fails this check, which is called the WCAG 2.1 standards, then they either send you a demand letter and demand some money or they file a lawsuit against you. And there's a lot of really easy ways to fix this problem. One of which is um, adopting a terms of use agreement that explains the steps that you've taken to make your website more accessible. And most importantly, has a choice of law clause. The choice of law clause is a clause that says, if you want to file a lawsuit against us, you have to do so in X jurisdiction. Uh, if, if you add an arbitration provision to that choice of law clause, the economics of the relationship between you and the troll change because a lawyer troll feeds off of the idea that you don't want to be pulled into a foreign jurisdiction to, to litigate a claim. But if you just take a little step and you put an arbitration clause and a uh, choice of law clause within your terms of use agreement that says, any dispute, including disputes over accessibility, must be uh, arbitrated within, let's say, for example, Saigon, then those clauses are enforceable. And they are enforceable under what's called the New York Convention. And almost every country in the world, Vietnam included, uh, has signed that New York Convention. So now, this troll who thought they were going to take a ton of money from you, 
now has to <laughs> come litigate this claim in Saigon. And of course, they're not going to do that. So there, there's always little tricks like that to deal with these emerging issues. And there's a lot of our clients are just, as you said, they say, well, if it happens to me, whatever, I don't care. I'll just deal with it then. Well, it's starting to happen. We had a guy this week, a single guy, meaning single employee e-commerce store makes pretty decent money. He got sued this week over this issue. Hmm, interesting. That's uh, that's super valuable. What well, what's the best place for people if they want to go get some information? I mean, it doesn't sound like it's difficult to do, but where, where's the best place really to get some information, some more information around this, and be able to implement it? Sure. If you want to, uh, our website has stuff. I don't want to, you know, self promote. Sure. Uh, Revisionlegal.com. Our blog has a lot of articles on this particular ADA uh, issue, and yeah. uh, there are some other providers that help with compliance. One is called Accessibee. They're the big one right now. You can check out their website if you just Google Accessibee. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And I'll definitely include the links to that in the show notes as well, because that sounds like something that's super valuable. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I also operate a lot within the SEO space. And one thing that most SEOs do is a lot of this outreach where they're constantly emailing other websites and things like that, right? And majority of people are just like, oh, you know, I don't really know the rules. I don't really care about them. And yeah, but but definitely, again, as a business, right, when you're reaching out to others and so on, if you're doing it at random with no particular information and so on, um I guess there's definitely rules that are important to understand a little bit of, right? Definitely. I, I am also um, concerned sometimes because I hire uh, outreach people as well for our site purposes. And thankfully, we've had really good experience. We use this company, uh, Authority Builders. I think you might know some of the people there. Yeah. And they've been pretty good so far. But yeah, if you've got a kind of you know gray hat, person you might want to look at and see what they're doing to see if they're, they're uh, putting you at risk of liability certainly and what about so definitely lots of business owners are also doing a lot of this sort of cold outreach and and so on what what are sort of the the legal side of that in terms of yeah let, let's let's take the u.s right so so if if you're operating in the u.s and and you want to reach out to people what are sort of the legal do's and don'ts around that? The first is just don't be a jerk. <laughs> that's that's the first step. Don't lie about your, um, you know, the origin of your email or the purpose of your email. Uh, be upfront. And the, the reason for that is there are actually false advertising claims, federal claims that could be brought against you. Uh, can spam doesn't really have teeth in the United States anymore. But the general idea is don't use false or misleading headers. Um, in The U.S. is interesting because it has no federal data privacy law. So outside of a limited set of things, you can essentially do what you want. So there's no opt-in requirement except for in California in cases of where you are selling uh, a user's data to a third party. And you know, outside of that, it's kind of a wild west. Whereas something like Europe has a very, and Canada too, have very regulated, strict um, regimes for what you can and can't do, obviously. Right. 
yeah, it, it makes sense. And one of the things that, that I've talked with a lot of people about is like very often when they're emailing websites, they're like, well, we don't know what country that website actually belongs to because it's not obvious. Like if someone have a blog and, you know, they have the website name, but it's not necessarily obvious if they're in the US or in Europe or wherever. Um, you know, what, what, what's the smart thing to do around things like that? I think the smart thing is to just keep a handle on your uh, placements and backlinks. I, I'm uh, not the greatest at this. I looked the other day and we had a, a backlink in Bangladesh. And, you know, I, I would love to have clients in Bangladesh, but I don't think they're coming uh, to a U.S. attorney anytime for soon for any kind of uh, normal services. Uh, and there's also, you know, regulatory concerns that come with that. So I, I think the general idea is just make sure you're up on what's happening. Um, don't address it when things go bad. Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. Right, John, that's been a lot of good information. And anything else from a legal perspective that you think would be super valuable for, for the smaller business owners to, to know and understand? I hate sounding like a broken record, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, file for trademark registration. If you have a brand, if you have a business, the best thing that you can do if you intend to sell your business is to secure your IP assets because on your balance sheet, it will have value and it will need to be cleared up in due diligence. And I think a lot of people um, believe that that process is for larger companies, but even the single yes. store owner should be doing it. They should have their head around what is their, uh, what, what do they own and, and what are the, um, pieces that can be transferred if they ultimately want to sell their business. And how difficult is it? It's, it's not difficult um, in the sense of, uh, well, let me, let me rephrase that. If, you've, if it's clear and if there are no risks to filing, it should be relatively easy. In the European Union, it's relatively easy. If you have a more complex mark that uh, is in a crowded field with other things like you, then you should probably talk to an attorney and go through the process. And even then it's a relatively painless process in the sense that somebody uh, can look at your mark, provide you with some advice and give you some context for what the process will look like. It's, it's quite a long process, however, it takes typically about six to 12 months to get a registration. Um, right. And that your rights date back to the date of filing, but unfortunately these dockets at these government agencies uh, take a while to get through. That makes sense. And what, what's typically the cost? Like what, what is the actual cost of getting a trademark? Uh, for example, if you have a brand. It can range anywhere from about $850 if you use a service like LegalZoom up to about $1,600 if you use kind of a larger law firm. Um, I Price typically is uh, commensurate with skill. So I, I think in this area, if somebody's offering you the $750 option, you should think twice about it. And the reason why I say that is um, the margins on $750 uh, trademark filings are so low, they're almost nothing, that the amount of time and the amount of care that somebody at that price point is going to take with you is, uh, it would be concerning to me. And I, I know everybody's looking for a deal, but I, I like to tell people, like, think about that. Because if somebody doesn't care about your trademark, you're going to run into a lot of 
issues down the road because they're just not going to care or take the time to spot those issues for you. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. That was very, very interesting. And I think that's a good point. I mean, I definitely, in particularly in the e-commerce space, right, there's so many new companies shooting up and so many, comp- so many companies who are, you know, constantly buying and selling. And, and I definitely know that many, many of them have not trademarked their products and, and, and their brand, right? Yeah, I like to tell the story of this um, relative, kind of a, a relative by blood that um, I actually ended up on the other side in litigation from them. And they had purchased a restaurant business. It was about 40 different restaurants within this portfolio. And prior to purchasing them, they did not check to see if the trademark was clear. And so they get in and they've been operating for five years. And all of a sudden, someone comes out of the woodwork with the same trademark that had used it prior to them. And so all of a sudden, all of these units, uh, these stores, all the signage, all of the expense associated with the stores uh, had to be redone because they had to change their name. And that's the worst case scenario. You you want to avoid that. So doing it early is... uh, it's probably a, the smartest move to make. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, that sounds like a horrible, horrible situation. So. It was bad. I laughed. I said, you should have used us. <laughs> yep. Okay. That is, uh, that is good, John. I think uh, lots and lots of useful information here. If people are eager to get hold of you, so obviously revision legal, uh, any other any other sort of contact details or how do you prefer con- people contact you if they want to know more or ask more or just eager to connect with you? Definitely check out our website, revisionlegal.com. We have a pretty good blog. We try to provide reasonable content there. Um, we have an 800 number. If you're anywhere in the world, 855-473-8474. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the kind of normal places. So yeah, look yep. us up. We'll try to push if you if you want it. We'll try to push reasonable content to you. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very very much for joining me today. That's been super valuable and definitely, as I said, a field that I'm not necessarily an expert in. So that has been super super interesting. Uh, any last shout outs or any last sort of resources or anything at all you want to recommend for people? I don't have anything else. I just want to say that I'm looking forward to seeing you in person again. I cannot wait until this is over and we can travel once again. I am looking forward to see other human beings again. <laughs> uh, so yeah, L- luckily I'm in Vietnam where things are not so bad, but uh, yeah, traveling and seeing all 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 the people around the world again is definitely going to be a good thing. So have a good one, John. And thank you very much for joining us. And to the audience, we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Please leave a review. It means the world to us. You can also learn more about management at madsingers.com.